Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Jeremy Scott Fitness Podcast Radio Show. Coming to you on this Friday, February the 25th, 2022. Hopefully it finds you staying safe and staying sweaty all at the same time. On today's episode, we have best-selling author David Romanelli in the house. But before we harass him with a handful of questions, real quick uh, housekeeping stuff. One, our 30 for 30 challenge here is kicking off in eight days and a handful of hours. If you guys are looking to do something a little bit different, kind of kick off spring and head into summertime, really, you know, on all cylinders firing, this would be the program for you. The link is in our Instagram bio right now. If you guys want to check it out, the site is jeremyscuffinness.com slash 30-30-challenge. I'm happy to give you guys a little podcast discount code if that will help you out. Obviously, 30 minutes a day is all we're asking for all 30 days. The thing will rip your face off in the most healthy way possible. So if you're interested, hit us up. Otherwise, check out the site, and we'll be kicking off here in eight short days. And you guys already know this podcast is brought to you by my homies at Athletic Greens. It's the one thing I take every single day and I never miss. If you're somebody who struggles to eat enough green vegetables, and let's be real, all of you guys do, even I do on certain days, this would be the one thing I would take and put into my life. Obviously, eating real food I'm a fan of, but I'm also a realist. I know you guys get busy and you're running around. So this is going to cover the gaps in your nutrition. If you want to check it out right now, we're going to give away a year's supply of free vitamin D, which you should already be taking, and five free travel packs with your first order. The site is athleticgreens.com slash Scott. And if you're really on the fence, maybe this is the first episode you've listened to, maybe you've heard me ramble on for almost 500 episodes now, message us, contact page, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, I don't care if you, you know, send a letter from a pigeon, if it gets here with your address, I will have Monica send you a free pack right to your front door, 100% for free, you can give it a try, if you like it, then get hooked up with all the free stuff, it's the best tasting greens on the planet by far, is it a milkshake, no, but we've all drinking way worse shit, especially in college, and this is at least good for you, and that stuff was not, so if you're interested, hit us up, otherwise check out the site, athleticgreens.com slash Jeremy Scott, and then you get the free stuff from there. Boom. So, my man, David Romanelli. What's up, dude? It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, for the people uh, listening, I'm not going to go over your whole bio because it is extensive. Uh, but uh, who are you? <laughs> it's an uh, origin story as far back as you want to go. It doesn't matter where you want to take it. Yeah. After, uh, my story is I took my first yoga class in 1996. Got a kick-ass workout, but it was profoundly awakening and spiritual. And that combo of sweat and soul, uh, a buddy and I said, this yoga thing is going to take off. This was a time in the 90s when it, it hadn't taken off yet. And we moved here to Phoenix where there was very little yoga. And we opened the first chain of boutique yoga studios called At One Yoga and just made yoga really fun. Got rid of the senior guru took out billboards all over town that said breathe, had, you know, turned up the hip-hop music, and just made a really modern, fun yoga community. Sold that to Lifetime Fitness in 2010, and I continued this mission to get more people doing yoga. So I did these events all over the country where I would combine yoga with the things people love most. So I did yoga and chocolate with my friend Katrina Markoff, who started Vos Chocolate, and you do yoga and then you'd come out of your shavasana and your senses would be heightened and you'd try the most exotic chocolate you ever tried in your whole life and it was like just this profoundly delicious relaxing 
epic sensory experience. And then yoga and wine. Uh, before, you know, anyone who's really doing that, we would drink wine on the vineyards and, you're, you know, it was all about aging with grace and wine is one of the few things that ages well and yogis tend to age well too. And then yoga for foodies with all these great chefs and it was about the slow food movement and slowing down to appreciate the nuances in, in great food and in life. And after that, uh, I took a much different path um, because my last surviving grandparent was in an old age home and I would visit her and I was like, here I am in the yoga world where it's like the 32-year-old yoga star is the source of wisdom in our culture. And you have the 88-year-old Holocaust survivor dying a lonely death in the old age home. And I was like, wow, I need to focus here. And so I started interviewing older people in their 80s, 90s, and 100s and made that a big part of my life path and started doing these events all over the country called Drinks With Your Elders, where I bring very isolated, lonely old people into the community to talk to young people and share their wisdom. And so that there was a lot more to it, but there's probably a lot to talk about right there. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's a lot of stuff. Like as I was kind of going through all of your info, I'm like, this dude has, has bounced around to a handful <laughs> of like uh, unique things. And I'm wondering, cause obviously this is the time before social media. And before everything is kind of popping off and you're like, well, yoga is going to start banging. So you start one facility at first and how many did it grow to? Just three, but they were three studios in town that people loved. And it was like a really tight knit community. You know, when people weren't doing tight knit boutique fitness and we'd have these parties and these uh, and we'd integrate with the community and uh, do like yoga at Smoka, the Museum of Contemporary Art, and a lot of really fun, interesting ways to show that yoga is a way of life and not just a kind of a fitness experience. What other yoga places are even around back then? There was just Desert View, Desert Song. That was the only one I remember knowing about. And now in the valley, there's... <laughs> Like, thousands. Yeah, it's crazy, right? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So, and I'll go to this because I'll come back to the yoga wine stuff. But in 2010, you sell it. We and sold it, yeah. So why why sell it and how did that kind of come about? Did somebody approach you or were you guys like, hey, we're going to get out and, and transfer to do something else? Or was the offer just too good where you're like, hey, we got to let it go? My business partner, Ian Lopayton, who now started Spiritual Games. Oh, I know Ian. Yeah. 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 Oh, dude, he's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was my business partner, and it was actually his initial idea, and I jumped on board, you know, right when they opened the first one in 1998. And I had actually moved away to L.A. for a few years because I was just w missing family and wanting to get back there and moved back here in 2009. And Lifetime Fitness had opened something called Life Power, but they were just not able to compete with the community that we created at One Yoga. And so they, they, they kind of started sniffing around. And I think at the time we were kind of burned out. It was a lot of people pleasing and the service business. And there's, you know, a lot of ups and downs. And I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, and we just kind of felt like we had, there was a lot of competition. All these people were opening yoga studios and it felt like maybe this is a good time to turn the page. Was it, um, was it hard to do? Cause I'm like, I'm just thinking of, for me, obviously my name's in the door cause I'm an idiot and I didn't know what else to call it. So I have to be here all the time. 
but it's almost like a kid, right? Like you, you build this thing, it grows. And I, I say that to people who have never done it and they look at me like I'm an alien, but you've seen it start from here's an idea in our brain to now we have hundreds, if not thousands of people who like love this thing. And we're just going to give it over to, for better or worse, like corporate America and yeah. let it go. It was like it was a tough choice or it's just like this was just time. It was a tough choice because, I mean, I think one thing about it is that we were young, relatively young in our late 20s and 30s, and you realize the significance of creating a community. Now, I appreciate that more than I did then. So I think, I don't think we realized how special that was when when you're young. For sure. You know, and I I miss it now, to be honest with you. I miss it. We're going to have an At One Yoga reunion later this year, and that'll be super powerful to bring everyone back together but that part of it i think was lost on us at that age um and we were just burned out from it felt like people were coming in and they were creating new communities that had elements that were better than ours and it was like we've done maybe it's time to turn the page and let someone else see what they can do so that makes sense it was uh and i'll share this real fast just because the last two years were obviously a shit show for everybody and uh, most of our businesses is the internet and now we can do all these crazy things that we could never do and is the covid life i guess if you will business wise in terms of finances like the best we've ever done because we just started just crushing the internet and i tell people it's the saddest i ever was because huh. i would come here every day by myself for 10 12 13 hours and talk to nobody <laughs> but a screen and i realized i'm like the community is everything. Yeah. Like I would start meeting these guys when the gyms are quote unquote closed at the park at five in the morning, which a is super humbling to start doing that shit again, but being there sweating with them. And I'm like hanging with these 20 guys at 5 AM, like doing these awful workouts with mostly body weight is the best part of my day. Hmm. And that's when it clicked for me. Like without the community, I'm like, what is there? Yeah. Like, what are we doing? The human, human experience is lost on in the internet age. And, you know, I think COVID reminded us that we, that's an important element of being happy. And was it your idea to like start mixing like the chocolate and the wine with the yoga or is that somebody else? And you're just like, yeah, it sounds fun. My friend who started this company, Vosh Chocolate came to me and, you know, she's like, you're doing what you love, mixing yoga with everything great in life. And I'm mixing chocolate with all these exotic ingredients and, People love yoga and they love chocolate. What if we like brought it together? And so we started experimenting with it. Yeah, because it doesn't sound like work to me. Like that sounds <laughs> like, like we can't, it doesn't really work here. Like, hey, drink wine and ride the assault bike. Like that seems like it'd be terrible. Like they just don't fit. But yoga is more of that. You're mindful, you're relaxed, you're kind of in the mode of it. And they kind of do go together, which is actually super cool. And I'd never heard of that uh, before. But I'm sure now there's a million spinoffs of that oh, like, God, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Oh God. And do you still teach and like practice yoga today? Now I do meditation and it's because this part of yoga that I always loved was the storytelling. It was less the physical aspect and more like, let me engage your mind and create, hold the space and create a story. And I found guided meditation was really conducive to that. So I have a platform subscription platform online where every single day I send out a new story driven meditation to my subscribers and Get get into your head and move the furniture around. And so that's like a like probably like one of your non-negotiables every day is like you wake up. Do you have a practice like yourself personally? Like you get up and and what does a routine look like? I wake up. I write in a journal a page. I fill a page that I'm great. What I'm grateful for. 
um, you know, now more than ever, uh, went through a crazy time during COVID because my daughter was diagnosed with leukemia and now she's doing great. But that was a real heart stopper. <laughs> For sure. How old is she? She was three when she was diagnosed. Now oh, she's shit. five. But, you know, it's not what you expect. And it's a complete reset on what it means to what you're living for and what it is to be healthy. And, you know, every day I just have to remember she's healthy. My son's healthy. My wife's healthy. And we have, I have everything I need to have an awesome day. And, but that, that takes, you know, you gotta, you gotta embrace that every morning. And that's what I do. It's like a exercise essentially for yes. But mentally gratitude is, uh, this gratitude expert is the leading gratitude expert. His name is Robert Emmons. And he says, you have to be a badass to be grateful because gratitude's morally and intellectually demanding, meaning it's easy to wake up and just fixate on all that's wrong, and you have to get your mind fit to focus on what's right. So, yeah. agree. Well, we call it uh, luxury problems here. Yeah, it's yeah. Scottsdale. You're familiar. Yeah, high class problems. The yeah. shit we hear all the time. Oh my god. Where I'm like, that's not really. I mean, you're, I know your Porsche tire is flat, <laughs> but like. <laughs> Is that really like, but again, for, but again, we always say like the phrase, like whatever the worst thing you've been through is the worst thing you've been through. So if that's their thing, yeah. I, I try to empathize on some kind of bullshit level, but I know what you mean, especially yeah. when real stuff like that, like, Hey, and you know, a family member has cancer, like then it becomes, I guess it washes away all the bullshit stuff real quick. I mean, it's the most profound reset, the, the greatest fear, you know, I mean, I was always kind of a for lack of a better word, a pussy. <laughs> and then you go through something like that. And somebody said to me early on, you'll never be scared of anything ever again. And it, I mean, it's true. You know, I mean, you face your greatest fear and you come out the other side and you feel like you can handle anything. And that's like during COVID. Yeah. The height of COVID, like right in the beginning. So when already like the world sucks, yeah. like nobody's happy. You're like, oh, here's this other shit you got to deal with. It was wild, man. I mean, yeah. I mean, I couldn't, it came out of nowhere. She woke up with a limp one morning. I was like, oh, she hurt her leg. Didn't go away for a week. And then we had to get blood work. And it really, it was, uh, you know, kind of came out of nowhere and changed our lives forever. And now she's doing a lot better at this point. She's doing great. She's in remission. She's in school. She lost her hair. Hair grew back. You wouldn't know anything was wrong with her. But, you know, you live with that over, hanging over your head. Like a, one of the doctors said, it's like you live all cancer survivors. They have a sword over their head because you don't know if it's going to come back for sure. And, you know, but the young cancer survivors, especially with leukemia after five years, it's considered cured. So you have that to look forward to and you have to learn how to, what I say is you have to learn how to kind of hold the sword because you can cut through all the minutia and all the, the nonsense and be super present and awake and alive. But sometimes the sword can get the best of you. So, yeah, and I think for a lot of people, I mean, we've had other younger kids where we've heard the same story, but they tend to be like, and I'm sure your daughter's the same, they're super positive. It's amazing, resilient. Yeah, because I imagine if it was me, I'm like, I'd be like fucking pissed, angry, the why me shit, and the kids tend to not be that. Yeah, she would have like literally five types of chemo at a, a day in the clinic, and she'd come home and jump on the trampoline. And we never told her she was getting chemo we told her she was getting superpowers in her tubies oh yeah and that was the story and i think it's a huge part of healing is the story that you wrap around what your predicament is is really meaningful 
Well, I think I've heard, like you read sometimes the studies where people will get a diagnosis of something, whether it's cancer or tumor, and they're essentially, they feel fine. And then when they get that, all of a sudden their physiology changes. Yeah. They start to feel sick. They become sick because now their brain is basically, it almost like imprisons you. And when you're older, you can kind of contextualize that when you're a kid and they tell you it's superpowers like, well, mom and dad told me, so I believe it. Yeah. Which is actually pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, I don't know when the moment comes where she finds – she doesn't know the word cancer. So at some point, she's going to ask us what all that was, and I don't know. We haven't talked about how we're going to – what we're going to say. I mean, I don't even know. That's, cra- <laughs> that's crazy, dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when you said you have like a – is it like an email list or like an app where you send out the meditation stuff? Right now, it's, it's a web-based app, and everybody gets a daily email prompt where I'm upgrading to a mobile app. I mean, the meditation space is so – crazy right now and there's so many people doing it i just like to say that i'm your wingman on the journey every day it feels relatable talk about art sports music culture feels vulnerable you know when i uh i she was my daughter was diagnosed i mean i shared with my my listeners like the week going into it oh she's got a limp i don't know what it is i'm sure it's no big deal and then one morning they woke up and I said, I found out last night my daughter has leukemia. And they were right there with me on the journey. And I think that there's something about that that makes it different than just meditation. You know, I don't know what the word is, but we're on it. We're in it. We're on it together. That's cool. And that's community. Exactly. There you go. Digital. But <laughs> And that's like as much as I hate Zoom and, and all that shit, like it is nice to have the connection where they – whether – it's a lot of times it's one way. Like all the, like there's a lot of people listening to this right now that I'll probably never talk to and never see. Yeah. But there's a community there that we kind of create and you have that too, which is pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like meditation, like when people are listening and they think about it and this is just me generalizing the public here, uh, meditation is kind of bullshit. Like I can't get down with that. What are, I guess like the benefits or the advice you give to beginners. Cause like we, we all do it a little differently. Like your practice is probably different than mine. And I share this all the time. Like the radio died in my car, like five years ago. And they asked for that little code. And all I have to do is go to the dealership to get it. And I never do. Cause I'm a too lazy. Um, and I don't give a shit because when I drive here, that's my silent time. Cause the minute I come here, it's like Tupac's on, everybody has a question and it's not, I can't be mindful at all. So when I drive here, that's my like 13, 14 minutes of just like at least free time. Yeah. So for someone who's listening, like, do you give advice for the people who are just starting out or like, hey, here's the benefits. If you want to give it a try, here's how you ease into it. Well, the story, the story of how I got into it, because I never really took to it. And then my wife, after we sold our business in Phoenix, my wife wanted to live in New York City. So we were living in the East Village in this tiny apartment, you know, and it was winter time. And you couldn't go outside, and I was losing my mind. Just it was like claustrophobic. And I heard this Deepak Oprah, Deepak Chopra Oprah meditation. They used to do a lot of those series, and it was like I felt like I could relax, like I had space on the inside, that I wasn't so claustrophobic. And I was hooked because I didn't know that that was possible. There's a quote: "A vibrant inner life is far more powerful than a busy outer one," and that was really what made me. realize there's something really meaningful about switching your mind um, into a state where you can relax and you have control and you're creating your story. I used to just be kind of trapped in this matrix and always on defense 
And that changed for me then. So I was like, okay, if people could get this feeling that I have right now, because God knows there's millions and millions of people that, that don't have this feeling and continue to be trapped in their life. And so I started kind of playing with the idea of story-driven meditation and how do you do that. And Because if you can get someone into that space who's otherwise not willing to go there or thinks it's just excruciating boredom, but if you can hold their hand and tell them a story and say, let's hang out and let's explore here together, that that's a win. So that's my angle on it. And that's kind of how you got into it, and then that's how you start presenting it to everybody else. Yes, yeah, so it can be fun. It can be meaningful. It can be engaging. Let me compel you to want to listen every day, and that's that was my kind of approach to it. And they're connected, but how much do you guys focus on like breath work and breathing and things like that? Or how much have you studied it and kind of went down that rabbit hole? Not a lot. I don't do a lot of the technique. There's a million other people out there doing technique. I'm more like, let me tell you a story and let's get to a quiet place and take a few minutes to relax before we get into the rest of our day. That's my, my approach to it. There's a million other people out there who will do breath work and do it better than I will. Well, yeah, because now there's, I mean, like a hundred apps. <laughs> it's crazy. Like it's nuts. And then yeah. like, I was like Wim Hof, like, cause he's like, yeah. cause he's fucking nuts and there's all the things. So it's interesting. I guess whatever, you know, it's like fitness, like something works for everybody. You just kind of have to find your lane, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I just, I do it cause I love it. And I, I would want to, if that was the kind of meditation that I would want to hear as somebody who could engage me with something that was evergreen and relevant and, Tell me a story because we all are suckers for a good story. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I want to wake up with my coffee and and hear a story that's going to make me feel good. But also feels like I'm connected to the world around me. And so that's I share what I'd want to hear, basically. And is this uh, is it audio? Is it text? audio? Yeah. Yeah. Audio. It's called meditate on every day. We meditate on a different topic. And how long are the uh, how long do you ramble for? 18 minutes, but it's about six seven minutes of story then eight minutes of with music and quiet and a centering thought and then i come back at the end and send you on your way that's cool uh and you personally do you do your own stuff like is it once a day or is it multiple times throughout the day my practice yeah i don't have a specific um like regimen but i definitely take lots of time to push back from the computer and just give my brain a chance to reset because I think there's a, a fact that I read that for every 54 minutes of work, you want something like 18 minutes of rest to maximize your brain power, which is not realistic. But the idea is that if you just like are focused all day long, you're not going to get the most out of your brain than if you take little rests throughout your day. That makes sense because I mean, your work day can just chew you up real yeah. quick yeah and just think too much you know we just think too much and there's not enough time to come from the heart or you know to tap in your intuition so so if i change gears here a second you've written some pretty legit books over the years how many total three total and the first one was called yeah dave's guide to live in the moment and uh i looked that's the only one i have not read through yeah um, but i read all the cliffs notes on amazon Okay. And all the comments. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Give these guys like uh, like the little Cliff's notes of, of that book, and I'll touch on it in a second. <laughs> that book was uh, what goes on behind the scenes in the yoga world, like all the naughty stuff. 
um, that now has sort of come to light with the Bikram um, documentary on Netflix. But it was just the humor and what goes on when, you know, your yoga teacher is being naughty. So it was a funny, uh, irreverent approach to spirituality and self-help. Uh, maybe too irreverent, kind of went a little off the deep end there. I was young and immature and maybe told stories I wouldn't tell now. <laughs> but uh, the reviews are good. Like people dig it. For the I, most part. I think people appreciated, you know, taking risks and telling them honestly what it's really like. Well, and if you touch on just like living in the moment and like obviously with, with social media now and, and things are – it's so ramped up and uh, like we live in this kind of digital space and I'm very thankful for it. And I don't mean to talk shit about it. I go, but it's consuming. It's the end all be all. And now with everything, like it becomes polarizing, whether it's like it's left, it's right. It's like you're a Packers fan, you're a Vikings fan and everything is just always in front. Like for the general population, like sometimes I don't think people are actually living in the moment and they're taking things probably like way too seriously. Um, is there things that you do to try to actually like focus on just being present? Cause it's so easy to get like wrapped up and like, I want pissed off, you know, I got divorced 10 years ago. So I'm focused on that and that kills me every day. Or, you know, I'll be happy when I get this house or I lose this weight or I do this thing. Like, is there something that you do to be like, well, this is all it is, is today. And, and how do I just get to be here? Yeah. I had a mantra in that book. BFD, beautiful, funny, and delicious moment each day keeps the stress away. And it's a conversation that I often have with my family about what was a beautiful moment you had today? And, it, you know, did you watch the sunrise? Did you look at the moon? Did you go for a swim? Did you just take a single moment to relax? I think if you, if you put your head on the pillow at night to go to sleep and you didn't have a beautiful moment, that's a big loss. And I think that happens all the time that we just are in such a frenzied pace that we don't remember a single thing that happened from the day gone by. And that's a problem. And then funny moment is just being able to not take yourself so seriously. Um, you know, it's very common that we have a whole day where we don't laugh. And if you remember the last time you laughed so hard that you lost control, I mean, it's exhilarating and it, you know, a story, my brother was in rehab with Chris Farley and Chris Farley. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Yeah. And we, it was family day and everybody had their family there and you went around the circle and it was intense when you're, you know, your sibling is in rehab and he, we had this big family argument in front of everyone. He wanted to tell my, my mom wanted to tell her friend Roz what, where she was all the time. And my brother didn't want her to know and finally he goes, I don't fucking care. Just tell her. And Chris Farley picks up this imaginary phone and pretends to be my mom. And he says, Roz, guess who's in rehab? And I mean, like, it was such a, a relief, a release to oh, have, yeah. like, Chris Farley make fun of my, like, Jewish mom. That's badass, actually. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. And it felt so good and so healing. And you just forget we need more laughter and not to take ourselves so seriously. And then delicious moment is just to savor food because it's so easy when we eat to look at whatever you're looking at on your phone and just scarf it down. You don't taste a single bite. Oh yeah. And you know, I mean, is that the way we want to be living? And I think that's what you're saying. Nobody's living in the moment. 
Well, and we just read a, it was a, we did a nutrition podcast with uh, Sergio Rojas a couple of weeks back. And I think the stat was you sh- you're supposed to, and this is more digestion based, but it goes into it because he's huge. He actually hung out with uh, the Dalai Lama for like a month, like this really crazy story. And I'm like, it just sounds fake to me even now that he tells it, but you're supposed to chew your food, I think like 38 times before you swallow it. Now, that's fucking insane to do, but we chew it like three or four times. Just, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> if that. Like sometimes we're like a dog, like we yeah. do it so fast and then you're not mindful of like what you're eating, which does mess with like your digestion, how you process food and the appreciation for it. And so like, as I look through all of the notes of that book, to me, the takeaway is like, well, you can take your craft serious, you know, but not yourself. And I think we do that at times because we get so wrapped up in all the shit. Yeah. And it's just too much at, you know, often at times. So if I go into the next book you wrote, which Happy is, is it the Happy is the New Healthy? Is that the next yes, one? Yes, yes. It's actually a great book. And there's a, in the intro, you have a quote, it takes practice to create a positivity bias, to be grateful for all you do and have instead of what you don't have. Yeah. And there's a Martin Rooney quote that I read probably like two weeks ago that we talked about in the podcast. And he goes on to say, you undervalue what you have right now when you spend energy overvaluing the things you wish you had in the future. Hmm. And that's kind of the, the same context. And I do think, how is that fixable for anybody? Like, how can you just be present in the day when like, we're so worried about, you know, before and after? It is so hard to do. I mean, it's, it reminds me of another quote. If you're not grateful for what you have now, how will you be grateful for what you hope to have in the future? And it's true. It's like a disease of the mind that we are always searching for what we need next. And you have to stop and celebrate every day what you have now. You know, I'm Jewish, and there's a big thing when more people that are more Orthodox Jews is to have a uh, Shabbat and have a Sabbath. And there was this one very religious Jew that I was recently talking about, and he said to me, I I don't understand how you could not have Shabbat, how you could not have a Sabbath. How do you just go seven days always on without a day for rest? Like it was bewildering to him that I didn't do that. And that was like punt a whole day. Yeah, punt all day. I mean, you'll see the Orthodox Jews walking down the street. They don't drive their cars. They don't use their phones. They don't watch TV. They have a whole day from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday. And it's by far the most glorious day of the week. And they love it and they cherish it. And I think for you or for me, that would be that would be crazy. I mean, it's in as much as I hate to admit this, like it sounds awesome. Now, at some point, like, I would like to be Ron Swanson and disappear in the woods and no one can fucking ever contact me again. Um, I don't think that's going to happen for me just because, like, people will keep harassing me forever and will keep helping people, which I'm grateful for. But that sounds great in theory to put my phone away and do whatever. But I imagine the anxiety I would have when I turn my phone back on. I'm like, oh, my God, I have 806 emails. I have this many messages. It's I do think it sounds great, but I don't know if I could possibly do it without losing my mind because I'm so like in I'm plugged into the matrix now me too I mean I listen I wrote a book happy is the new healthy but I don't do this I don't do Shabbat I don't have a Sabbath but I do think that it's needed to some extent we have to find a way to create space or you're not going to hear yourself you're not going to hear who you are and what you believe in it's like Joseph Campbell talks about a sacred space we need a sacred space where you don't know what time it is you don't know who you owe money to you don't know where you are who you are and just have a chance to reset. 
And like where in like basically unless you're in nature and your technology is dead, like it's hard to to find that unless you do put all the safeguards into place. Yeah. Especially when we become these social creatures cuz even you without technology like how do the people get your meditation? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. I think it starts by having a conversation around it. That's what that's what I do in meditations. That's what you and I are doing right now. You know, let's at least talk about <laughs> talk about if we can, if we're not going to do it, we can at least talk about the idea of taking time for each for ourselves. Um, one of the things I've seen when I teach meditations in person that's really powerful, especially for people who are super restless and they're not really able to meditate. They've never done it before. And you talk about self-compassion and self-love and the concept, even though you've heard about it a million times, for a lot of people to actually love yourself and take a moment to forgive yourself is so foreign. And I've seen people who have, want nothing to do with me or meditation. Suddenly, they are so dialed into the moment when they give themselves permission to be forgiving and to be accepting. So th- I think there's something there also that's really potent. And is there anything you do to like unplug? Is it a certain day of the week or a certain time? Like for me, we li- like these guys know I live on all this shit. They basically know everything I do in my life for the most part or what we want to share, even though most of like some of it's curated, obviously, and whatever. And I don't share every shitty day because I don't want to depress people. But when I go home, my phone goes in the bathroom. Yeah. And like I sleep in the bedroom. I'm around like so when I'm there, I'm there because I just can't do it anymore because mm-hmm. it's just too much. It routes my br- I think it routes my brain, honestly, at some point. Is there anything you do like that where it's like, hey, you know, I don't watch TV at this point. I don't do this. Like this is just my time to just be here. Yes, I'm what they call a lark, so I'm up really early, like usually around 3 a.m. And that's, you get up at three. See, I mean, when I, I mean, as much as I can, I like doing that. Mine's like 3:50. You're a psychopath. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Well, it's just the only. I have young kids, and it's the only time when you can get peace and quiet. And you I know, get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get. But then my friends going out for dinner, and it's like, you know, are you fucking serious? Like, we're gonna start dinner at eight o'clock. You know, I mean, oh, I dude. go to sleep early. <laughs> my, my wife will sometimes, we actually went out to dinner with some family last night and it was 530 and I'm like, that's about the cutoff. Yeah. Because if she's like, <laughs> it's 645, I'm like, if it's 645, I'm going to get home at nine or 10. I'm like, I got to get up at four. Yeah. I'm, like, yeah. No, I'm fucked. Dude. Yeah. Like, I can't do that. Yeah. You eat with the older crowd. Um, I'm, oh, my wife all the time. Like if we go to uh, like Roaring Fork, if yeah. you know where it is here, um, we'll walk in or like there's another place called uh, Toddy's, which is a great little like. Uh, dive uh, pho place yeah and it's us and like she's like it's just us and people with white hair i'm like yeah <laughs> i'm like this is my people dude I'm totally like, yeah, me too i me dig too. it <laughs> um in that same book uh there's a study uh i think it's ed diener is the name of psychologist and, and you referenced um they did an, uh, a happiness kind of survey basically and it say that happiness is based off of the frequency not the intensity of it and I think when I read that and how I interpret it is we get so busy working in life to just like working for the weekend type shit yeah or just trying to enjoy vacations and the what I understood as I kind of looked through the book and I read a lot of things you know that preceded that the biggest takeaway is like just kind of focus on now and don't wait to celebrate and I'm assuming that's still your mantra today, like try and find out little things, which you mentioned previously a little bit, each day to be happy for, as opposed to just waiting for 
oh, well, when I get a vacation, then it will be cool. Yeah. uh, The research that you were mentioning is that the happiness comes from frequency of positive experiences, not intensity of positive experiences. So the idea being that if you work hard all day and you go home and pour yourself a stiff drink at night, as much as that may be enjoyable, that the research shows that you're going to be happier if you scatter those little moments of release throughout your day and not just wait until one when you get home at night. So, I mean, that's kind of counterintuitive to people and you almost feel it's a guilty pleasure to take time in the middle of your day to relax. But that's, if you want to be happy, that's an important part of it. Well, and I think, and as I look at it too, if it's, you know, chronological, let's say like we put so much emphasis on, and I'll use an example, like your wedding day or something, not that it's not important, but we hype it up. Like it's this awesome thing. And as, if I remember mine, I'm like, well, I didn't get to eat anything. Um, I shook hands with a bunch of people I didn't know. And it was like this super expensive party with my friends that I could have thrown for half the price and made way more fun. And as cool as it was, we put emphasis on that day, but not on like a normal Wednesday. And to my wife, I always say, and, and she's much better than I am about like, you know, planning trips and doing like the super fun stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, Heather, that stuff's all great. I go, but I don't want to hate my Tuesday. Because if I hate my Tuesday, then I'm an asshole to you. Yeah. So I have to do things, you know, just by nature each day in, in a couple times, like if this is, you know, the kind of coffee I like, if this is my certain kind of workout, or if I have to listen to a certain kind of music, like I try to spread those out just naturally because otherwise I become miserable. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't do that enough. Yeah. Like we were mentioning Ian a few, that was co-founded the yoga studios with, and he always has the best Mondays because for most people, Monday is a throwaway and you know, I'll find myself having an epic meal or going to a concert, doing something on Mondays with Ian. And he's like, welcome to Monday, (laughs) you know, because Monday's such a throwaway. It doesn't have to be that way. No. And it would, and again, I'm not telling people like quit your job if you hate what you're doing, but I'm like, if you're waking up dreading every Monday, it's like, you're kind of wishing away one seventh of your life. Yeah. Which is a real shitty way to kind of go about things. Yeah. And I mean, it starts with you being able to approach the challenges in your life with a different attitude. I mean, just there were so many nights when I was with my daughter in the children's hospital. She lost her hair. She's strapped up to all these IV poles. There's, you know, kids with cancer. What could be worse than that? And, you know, it was like I really had to change my attitude and approach and be positive because a three-year-old child responds like a nurse told me on day one of her diagnosis and the nurse said if you if you have to cry go in the other room and close the door don't let them see you because kids respond and heal to positivity and i think that's true for adults too like if you want to heal what's not right in your life it starts with with positive positive energy that's interesting so they would tell you to kind of like do it on your own you don't want to let them see it yeah because they don't respond well to seeing your parents worried or sad, they respond to positivity and hopefulness and joy. That's got to be tough. Like when you're there and you're like, cause you probably feel like shit most days I imagine as you're sitting there, but yet you're the guy who wrote be happy. Here's the book. Yeah. That was an interesting, a lot of my friends said is what an interesting challenge for you to be on that journey and then have to face this. But it felt like to be honest with you, it made me going through this made me a happier and more grateful person than I was before it. So that's an interesting, um, 
interesting about life's challenges, extreme challenges. You like you just appreciate things at a, a higher level than before. I'm sure you did already, obviously. Not as much as I'd like to as I like to think I did. And when you go through something like this with a child, it's one thing with a parent or grandparent, but it's like your little baby girl and it was like, you know, your face is smushed against the glass by like the universe and you're like wake up, realize how fragile and precious life is and health is and live your life every day and, you know, spread good energy and be a good person and cherish the ones you love. And that's what you're here for. You know, you tell me that story about the guy you interviewed who made 200 million. And there's a part of me that it's like, Oh man, I want to make 200 million, <laughs> but 200 million sometimes doesn't even won't, if you know, won't buy your health back if you need it. So no. And we always say like, what is the cost and not just like the monetary, but how much time yeah. Like effort. And so, um, when Dr. John Brody was here, he, um, he was talking, he's like, now his whole life is different. Obviously like he has this absorbent amount of money and he doesn't work like he used to anymore. Like he homeschools his kids. They have four kids and he's, what did he say? He said 95% of the time you spend with your kids is like from one to 18 because after that you only get them for like 5% of the time. And I thought about that cause I'm like, I probably see my dad once a year, every year for like the last 15 years, which is crazy. Yeah. But when I'm a kid, like you're there every day. Yeah. So, and it's, I mean, for him, like he can obviously be mindful and you can do it, but to the point you're driving at sometimes this, and we see it here too. We meet people, how they're 40, 45, 50, maybe even their sixties. They spent an entire life creating wealth, 50, hundred, $200 million, whatever it may be, which is successful financially yet they're broken. Like their body is like physically just like this broken down bag of shit and they're not happy yet. They've treated everything and they don't have the one thing that they really want, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. It's, I've heard it referred to as the Western circumstance that we, in we spend all of our health to gain our wealth and then we have to spend our wealth to regain our health. And it's a vi this vicious cycle. Well, it's cause like when is enough enough, right? And for everybody that's obviously different. And I remember I read the book, I think it was Tony Robbins did a book like Money Mastery. Mm -hmm. They interview everybody like T. Boone Pickens, Warren Buffett, whatever. And they ask him, well, how much is enough? And to a person, more. Yeah. Like that's the thing. It's almost like this. It's like a sickness here. Because like if you're in America, and I love America, I think it's the most badass country there is. But we do a lot of shit wrong. Uh, like if you go to, like I've been to, uh, like the Malfi Coast or like Capri, right? No one has a three-car garage. No one's yeah. got an SUV. Shit, in Barcelona, like, we went to a restaurant. Like, it's closed at 2 o'clock. Oh, we'll be back in two hours. I'm like, well, what the fuck is that? That would never happen here at Postino's. <laughs> they're open. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're yeah, open every yeah. day. So there's things I do think other cultures do or places that aren't America where they're a little more mindful of the time and the experience and family where here it is so competitive. And it's like you have to do that to compete, but, like, it's almost like we're cutting our own throats. Yeah, and I, I talk about that in my books that we're like a very young country. Like we're like the prepubescent teenager. You know, we compared to older countries, we were, we're good at sports. You know, we have a lot of blemishes. We're very moody. We get into fights. And the way we treat our old people is an example of how we're a young country and we're naive because we put our old people out to pasture they're, they don't have a voice in popular culture. They're generally not relevant. When you're old in America, you're no longer relevant to 
American culture, but they've been through so much. Why do we not seek out their wisdom? And that's, I think that's to your point. Well, and that's the book you wrote, which I read through the whole thing. I think it was Tuesday. It's a great book. The stories are awesome in it, by the way. Thank uh, you. Life lessons, oldest to wisest. Life oh. lessons from the oldest and wisest. Yeah. I'll put, um, I'll put all these in the show notes so you guys will obviously see them. But I've said this for years. Um, and I'm older now compared – in fitness, I'm old as shit. That's just how it <laughs> works now. Um, so the young kids talk about me like I'm like about to die. <laughs> and like the kids, that, the kids that work for us, 24, 25, 26 – I tell them, like, if you want to learn something, I'm like, talk to your grandma and grandpa. Like, all of mine are dead. I'm like, but if you have the chance to, or go to a nursing home for that matter, go, because these guys in my young kid here will come in like, well, what you told me was right. I'm like, well, bro, I've already lived your life. I've already done all the things you want to do. And like my grandpa had already done all the shit I was going to do. And he'd live my life two, three times over, which is weird because we don't, we don't value it like other places. And I was talking with John Berardi there in the podcast about as we get older in America, like we fight it, you know, with uh, whether it's hormone replacement, with there's nothing wrong. If you need therapeutic levels, it's fine. Breast implants, Botox, dye our hair, all those things. And he was saying, and this is the first time I've heard it this way. He's like, you know, if you were like 60 and your testosterone was low, would you replace it? I'm like, well, yeah, I want to be fucking jacked till I'm dead because I'm a bro. But then he posed it where he's like, well, maybe there's something to be said about that because when you look at like historically the younger tribes where these guys go out, they, they hunt, they gather, they fight. As the older generation, their testosterone comes down, they become, you know, they slow down, they're older, they're wiser, and they share information. Maybe there's something to be said about that. Yet we do not value that here. Is that one of the reasons like why you decided to write the book or how did the book even come about? Well, there was a lady that I met in New York who was 111 and that's crazy. Yeah, it was. So they call that a super centenarian. And her, when I asked her, like, how did you manage to get to be this old? And she said her three tips were sex, vodka and spicy food. And that kind of joie de vivre (laughs) was, sorely missing and I think the lives of so many Americans and myself included and it 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 was like you know we just we forget to enjoy every day and I think when you see that's a forgotten kind of part of the equation you can be really fit and you can make have a good career and you can check off all those boxes but like are you truly enjoying being alive and if you're not that you know that's a big part of it for it's sure. Big, yeah, it's a big part of it. What is the the saying is like we bring uh, – you don't bring soup uh, when people are sick, but you bring like flowers to the funeral. I feel like that's what we do with like older people. Like we just kind of set them in a home and we're like, oh, fuck it, they're old. Like who cares? And that's not like that around the world. It's Yeah, it's not as – I mean it's definitely a problem here. And it was worse during COVID because everybody was super isolated but I think it just has to, we have to ask more questions. And, and one thing I've learned with older people, you got to be willing to listen. And we don't like to listen. If it's not in that one minute soundbite, it's hard to pay attention. And so there's a big disconnect in terms of attentiveness and willingness. Um, you know, you got to just make a commitment to pay attention. And is that historically how we've always been? Or do you think the progression's worse with? Because I, and again, I'm going to sound like an old person. Like, I didn't grow up with the internet, right? Like, I had a fucking Oregon Trail. It was like a game I could play in, like, school. Like, there was no, it was Ask Jeeves, 
or you go to the Dewey Decimal System to pull your shit to find books. I feel like now people's attention spans maybe are even less than they yeah. used to be. So maybe we value it even less now than we did 20, 30 years ago. I, I mean, I agree. I mean, I tell you, yesterday we had a 103-year-old World War II survivor that I created a Zoom conversation with my son's first grade class. And it was really interesting because that guy was 96 years older than these kids. But we got that we got everyone together. And I think it was so rejuvenating for the 103-year-old. And I think it was so interesting for the seven-year-old first graders. And we just need to get people together, get them in the same room, regardless of like the content of the conversation. I think just that is going to be healing for our society. And do you still do like the, uh, the elder meetup stuff? Well, I've started to. I mean, if anyone listening has an elder they want to recommend uh, who would be interested in coming out of isol- their relative isolation and having a party for their story, I'm, I'd love to hear it. I'm starting to. Just did one a few months ago for the first time in a while. Well, because we, we live in uh, like Old Town Arcadia area, and our neighbor, two, is he two doors down? He's 95 or 6, still drives his car every day to Fashion Square, does like the little mall walk. And uh, we like threw, this is like as soon as like, well, like when COVID's like dying down, Heather's like, oh, it's, it's going to be Russ's birthday. Let's throw a birthday party for him. So it gets these balloons, everything else. And he's like at the mall, like doing his walk. He's going to come back. She's like, we should hide behind the bushes and surprise him. I go, bro, we're going to fucking kill this guy. <laughs> he's 96 years old. I go, but, but when you talk to him and just to hear the things he says, like obviously there was no internet. He bought his house for $19,000 in our neighborhood it's a million today probably yeah like that whole progression has to be so just mind-blowing to not have an iphone to not have any like there's no netflix there's nothing and all of a sudden it's like he's in this world now that's it has to look like a different planet really but what to hear him talk though and like and just talk about hey you know uh, my wife died you know all my friends are dead like all this crazy shit where it's like everybody you went to high school and college with is not here anymore yeah. You're here by yourself, which is kind of like eerie to think about, but also like just this unique perspective that they have that there's no way I could understand it. Well, that's the hard part about the, the, the oldest of old. It's like scaling Everest because at a certain point you do lose everybody. And to stay alive and turn the corner and keep going, you have to really love life. Like this 103-year-old that I told you about yesterday, he – on his birthday on Monday, he went dancing. <laughs> like That's he just, awesome. he really likes telling stories and being alive. And a lot of people, you start to check out when you, people die and your body starts breaking down and you're just like, I've had enough. And that's sort of the beginning of the end. So you've got to really love, love being alive to keep going in and, my opinion. And like have uh, like some purpose. Exactly. Like he was more than willing to speak to these first graders and I can't get him off the phone. He always wants to tell his stories and yeah, you have to have something you're living for and it's got to be more than just, you know, the same, probably not the same purpose as when you were younger. It has to evolve as we get older. It has to change. And he's on Zoom though? Well, my, you know, my, somebody held a, he's not on Zoom. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> somebody like, held a p- iPad for him. I'm like, damn, that's impressive. Dude. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I could barely get my old man to do Zoom. He's like no, 65. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 No. Um, in the book itself, uh, is there like a specific interview 
that like you recall or that like kind of like hit home or like one that you'll kind of never forget as you were kind of going through it? Because there's a lot of them in there. Like you have some Holocaust people in there, like some crazy shit. Yeah, the Holocaust survivors. I mean, I've interviewed several of them. That's just a scary thing that that actually happened. Um, one lady that grew up in, I think it was Austria, and you know, you grow up and you live a, a it's like Scottsdale. You're living a nice life in a nice part of town with your successful, fam, you know, parents, beautiful and beautiful life, and then all of a sudden, a sovereign nation turned against them and carted them off to these camps and you know, it killed the parents and you were lucky to survive. And it's just hard to believe that it actually happened. It's one thing to read it in a history book, but it's another to sit with somebody who went who through it, lost everyone. Like one of the ladies I interviewed with lost both sets of grandparents, her parents and all three of her siblings. And to this, you know, to this day, the one that I interviewed in the book that it was, she was still angry. She hadn't forgiven. I tried to talk to her about happiness and it didn't register. And so you forget that people are still, you hear stories of the, those who have forgiven, but some, some people are still alive who still can't believe that they suffered that fate. And it's an important conversation to have. So it doesn't happen again. You know I mean? It's crazy that they're, they're still alive. And that's like, cause it, when I think of it, I'm like, Oh, it seems like it was 500 years ago. Yeah. But yeah. it wasn't. No, there's another Holocaust survivor who has a different story. And she went back to in 1981, she was in her forties. She lost both of her parents and in, in Auschwitz. And she went back to Germany and she knocked on the door of the home where she grew up. And the, where she last saw her parents and the uh, old German lady was living in her home and she answered the, she, you know, the, she answered the door and this lady looks inside at her old home where she grew up and just started like just emotionally just lost it. And this lady that was living there knew what was going on and they, they embraced and they held each other because she felt guilty as much as this lady felt grief. And she said she, in that moment, she forgave her nation and she forgave everything that happened and it totally changed the trajectory of her life because before that she held it inside and she was you know she'd hear a german accent and she would cringe and so it's also a reminder of the power of forgiveness you know if she was able to forgive that maybe you could forgive something that you're holding on to well that's like uh when i imagine like i'd like to be like oh yeah i could be able to get past it but i'm like it just seems like it'd be a really tough thing to let go because it's so traumatic too. Yeah. And they, what is this saying? Like you, uh, when, when you're, you can't forgive somebody, like you're basically, you're drinking poison and like hoping that person dies. Yeah. Yeah. And all it does is that you just carry it with you forever. Yeah. Is that why you started to the book itself or was it, was there a main reason where like, you know what, I'm going to interview cause this is unique. I'm sure, maybe there's other books like this. I have no clue. I'm like, but reading through it, I'm like, it is actually super cool. Well, you just learn a lot from people who are 80, 90, 100 years old and have been through divorce and, you know, or had a really healthy marriage. And what was their secret? Who raised kids who are miserable now and you want to know why so you don't make that mistake as a parent. And they raise kids who love hanging out with them and you want to know why. So you raise good 
kids. Um, there's a lot of stories that older people have been through, and some of them are not always positive stories. It's their it's their personal failures and what they learned from that that it's just as meaningful as their successes. I mean, I didn't really interview anyone in the book who was a wild like success story in the typical sense. It was people, working moms, um, you know, a lot of veterans, um, people who had just like a lady who lost two husbands. And she had a great story about at her own husband's funeral, she tripped and broke her femur and she femur bone. I mean, what could get worse than that? You're at your husband's funeral. It's like the hardest bone to break too in the body. Yeah. Yeah. And she said she had to get a a screw inserted in her leg. And she said, I got screwed by rod and I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she just had a great sense of humor about her losses in life. And I think the ones the elders that I've seen who are really charismatic and bounce back um, and overcome generally have a really good sense of humor because there's a lot of elders that they don't, they're stuck in something that happened in their past that didn't work out. And that's just where they stop growing. And you have to be resilient. You have to have a great sense of humor and the joie de vivre, the joy of life is also the third part that I think is really important. When I think like if you like, I think a lot of school is bullshit. This is just my opinion. No offense to anybody out there. I'm not saying I can do it better, but we learn a lot of horseshit stuff that I don't think is applicable, uh, like parallelograms and things like that, because I don't understand why I would ever have to know that come tax season really doesn't help me. Um, and I went to two schools. Um, I went to public school my whole life. My very last year I went to prep school where I played sports before moving on to college and in the public school for as shitty um, as it was overall, cause I basically slept and just cheated most of the time. There was a class called, <laughs> there was a class called aging where, um, my grandma and grandpa lived like maybe two miles from high school and I could actually drive there and it would be, you'd go there, um, every day and just hang out. And like most of the time, like turn on prices, right. And then just bullshit with my grandma and grandpa. I'm like, but that to me is one of the best memories I had. And I learned more just sitting there, having my grandpa tell me, well, you can make sure you get a good job. It's got to have a 401k and a pension. And then <laughs> obviously I end up doing this shit. So yeah. I didn't listen, <laughs> but there's a lot of things you learn from there. And I think if we could replace or have something like that in school, I think that would be way more beneficial to kids than maybe some of the standard stuff that's going on. I mean, it's, it's genius. I mean, there's older, I mean, there's a huge, most people my age don't have a single old person in their life. There's a lot of younger kids who do have a grandparents in their life, and but you don't realize how that doesn't last forever. The grandparents die, and then you might go the rest of your life without an, like a, an older person. And it's like a big disconnect in our society and in American culture. And I, I think it's genius. I think they should have older people in schools telling stories. Well, it's, it's where do you say that, and I'm not trying to call out uh, my entire family, but obviously I live here and my grandma before she passed away lived in Minnesota and we go visit and her and her boyfriend, we call him chef Boyardee cause he looks like chef Boyardee. <laughs> um, but he's been, I mean, he's basically been around since I was like a little kid. So her boyfriend of like 50 years and we would go and I didn't know this till my old man tell me, he's like, yeah, he's like, you're the only person who goes to visit her. And I'm like, well, what the fuck? I'm like, everybody else lives like 15 minutes away, 20 minutes away. I live 1,500 miles away. And I'm going, because I made it a point, because I'm like, it's important. I'm like, I don't know how long they'll be here. And I always got something out of it. Hmm. Like whether, you know, we think 
were younger, oh, we're smarter because like we're kind of with it and they're like they're not with the times. And they would say things like, oh, look at this lamp. We bought it off the Internet like it was this crazy thing, (laughs) you know, but it was beyond that. Like they have been through so many things that I've yet to experience. And if you're, I guess, what we would call like the, the beginner mindset, like where you can actually listen, like you pointed out. But a lot of times we have no interest in that. We're yeah. just, it's too fast. It's too quick. And we're not willing to slow down. Yeah. So I know you're on a time constraint, but I do got to ask these um, before yeah. you roll. Um, I think it's chapter, I wrote it down, chapter nine um, in that same book. It's uh, cherish your marriage before it's too late. There's a story. A guy named Ron. He's 81 years old. Talks about the last kind of 61 hours he spends with his wife who has dementia and eventually I think dies because of some of the complications. Now, like it's a super, I'm not an emotional guy, but I'm like, I'm reading it and I'm like, feeling like I'm almost going to cry a little bit as I look through it. And I bring that up because like, how do you not take your partner for granted? Because we all do that. Like the example I give is, and I'll use, I love my wife, but I'm going to call her out here. Um, if it would have been, you know, when we first start dating, if she's in front of the fridge, I'm like, hey, Heather, can you grab me a water? Sure, Jeremy, here it is. Now, if I'm like, hey, Heather, can you grab me a water? I mean, it's like a fucking death stare. Like, <laughs> no, you, can, you can get your ass up and grab your own water. And then she still loves me for sure. But we do those things. And I, I'm, I'm just as guilty of it, too, where, hey, Jeremy, will you get the laundry for me? I'm like, no, you get the laundry your damn self. So we start to, like, not appre- – we take them for granted is what I'm saying. And as I read this and I had her read it, I think yesterday morning, and she said the same thing. She's like, yeah, because for all the things that we do, like I leave my clothes lay on the floor, she leaves her makeup out or whatever, it annoys us. I would be so sad if it wasn't there. And yeah, how do we not like become those people in real time while they're still here? It's a tough thing to do. Well, that's the, the type of example of what you learn from being around older people is a lot of them are widowed. And they've lost somebody and they miss them terribly. And it wakes you up and makes you realize that somebody's eventually going to die. It's like a Jason Isbell song. I forget the name of the song about the if I were a vampire. And, you know, eventually I forget what the words are, but eventually somebody's going to die. And somebody's going to be left missing you, assuming you had a good, decent marriage. <laughs> something in the tank. Yeah. And it does happen. And you don't want to think about it. But there comes a time where it does happen. And so when you are around an older person who's missing their, you know, husband or wife who passed away, it wakes you up and makes you realize, okay, we've got our relative youth. We have each other. Let's wake up and appreciate this. And it's not just that you, you know, when you're very old, you can't even get up to get your glass of water at the other side of the room. You know, there's things like the fact that you can wake up and have an epic workout is not going to last forever. And, you know, that you have your basic mobility and agility that doesn't last forever. You know, people, when you're old, if people aren't showing up for you and they're not coming to visit you, it, the loneliness is crippling. And you can't get up and just go do anything anymore. You're sort of stuck in, in your chair. So it's like the seeds of love that you plant when you're younger reap a major harvest when you're older. There's a lot of old people who are surrounded by young, younger family and friends who love them and take care of them. But there's a lot of older people who nobody's showing up for. And it's a, it's really hard. So I think a lot of this is also karma. 
to think if this conversation about old people is like, why am I listening to this right now? This is like completely boring and irrelevant. Well, because one day you'll be old as shit too, dude. <laughs> well, some people don't want to be old. I think that's also interesting. Like they, you know, let me check out when I'm, you know, and when I'm relatively young. But if you want to get old, you know, it's not just about being healthy. You also got to have love, and you got to have people that show up for you. So. Well, and I think like technology and obviously we figured it out like biologically, we figured out some things. We used to be dead at 45 from yeah. diarrhea. No, it doesn't happen, you know? Yeah. And so God willing, you're going to probably be around for a good amount of time. And I think we used to think, maybe you don't, but I used to think, man, my dad's 50. Damn, he's old as shit. And now as like I'm getting older, I'm like, well, damn, 50 is not that far away, dude. I'm like, that's not that old. And some of the dudes in the best shape here, 54, 55, 56, it's kind of crazy to see. So on that same note is one of the biggest things you saw when you wrote this, like loneliness is one of the biggest, like, I mean, I don't want to say killers of these people, but one of the biggest things that kind of drags them down. I mean, I mean, for younger people too, I mean, you know, you spend too much time in front of your computer and not enough time having real human experiences and it makes you miserable. It's just not a happy feeling. And, but especially with older people who cannot necessarily, they have to have someone take them somewhere, you know, and that's, it's just a whole to do to have real human experiences. So, yeah, it absolutely takes you down. Uh, and if I touch on the, the partner for granted thing really quick, how do you even, for people, obviously, like if you have learned anything from, the older folks that you chat with, is there a way you get back to like the early stage of like, I don't want to say desire because it's, it'll always, you know, habituation is real. Shiny things get dull, your new car, you don't appreciate, but like, can you still just appreciate your partner? Is there things that you do maybe in your life to try to keep it from being like, ah, oh, well, I don't really give a shit. Or do you have to read stories like this guy who like goes over the last 61 hours he was with his wife and he's like, man, shit, you know, this is really hitting home for me. Well, I think you just have to, we have to have that shuffle the deck and have that kind of intergenerational mix because most of the time we hang out with people our own age. I mean, generally speaking, that's how it is. You know, my wife will be like, what are you, what are you doing today? And I'll tell her I'm going to have lunch with another woman, but she's like 87. So, <laughs> <laughs> so she's not too worried. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I mean, it's like, I think by shuffling the deck, and hanging out with people of every age, you get that perspective and you get those reminders and it's refreshing. You know, if you just hang out, I'm 48. If you just hang out with people who are 48, you're going to hear the same story. Like I get the death stare from my wife for going to do that. It's the same story. It's funny, but it's also the same old, same old. So, yeah. It, I wonder what it is like how us when we're younger and as I get older, I appreciate it more and more, but I'm guilty as anybody was at 16. The things I would say, Oh, when I become 18, I'll never come back here. I'll do all this shit. And my parents got to be looking at me like, you fucking idiot. Like, you'll be back here. Like, this is because we think we know everything. Yeah. And then slowly as we get older, I guess we can learn. But even now, it's I think it's hard for a lot of 25-year-olds to take advice from a 65-year-old because we feel it's just so disconnected. It's Yeah, it's just a – it's super rare when you meet a young person who's willing to listen and, and has perspective – you know, it's just really, I don't have any magic bullet for that. Maybe this, maybe psychedelics. Yeah. Let's go on a trip a little That's bit. That's a whole nother podcast. Um, I know you got to bounce in a minute. What, um, 
any uh, words of wisdom for listeners out there? When I think of, especially the uh, the book Life Lessons from the Oldest to the Wisest, when I talk with older people specifically, uh, regret is probably the one thing that you see in them where they wish they would have done more stuff with their time. It's probably the biggest thing I get. And what I thought about the other day as I was reading this, we put so much as a culture in America specifically, what's our job title? How much money do we make? Here's the house we live in, the neighborhood, the car we drive, all this shit. And when I think about my grandparents, first of all, my one grandma never drove, didn't have a driver's license. But like, I don't give a shit what they did for a living. I don't care where they lived. They were just, it was just the people they were. Yeah, we get so wrapped up in that stuff. And how do we get, you know, maybe to focus less on this is what's important versus this is what's important. Because you see that sometimes in their eyes, like, hey, I spent my whole life doing this one thing. But what really mattered to me was my family, my relationships, the connection. And we do a lot of speeches. Typically, it's to corporate groups like, let's say, AT&T. It's their diamond, you know, circle. And the one thing I say is I go list out the five, you know, things that are most important to you. And everybody says the same shit. Well, it's my health. It's my family. It's whatever. And now I go now list the five things you spend the most time doing. Well, it's fucking work is one always. Health is like 10 on the list. Family is way less. There's a disconnect there. Is there a way that we can somehow mash that together in the middle? I don't I don't have a magic answer. It's tough to do. But it needs to be done, obviously, because I think we'll get to the end of our life. And, and I'll be guilty of it, too, wishing I would have spent more time like with my dog while it was alive or with my wife or my family, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, it's real powerful what you're saying. And, and it's true that I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to this subject is that you realize that the, the elders who are really the oldest people in our society who are really the most well-adjusted and the healthiest and the happiest are those who have a lot of love in their life and invested in quality relationships. And it's not as so interesting or important when they're older if they have all the accoutrements of, of a successful career. I mean, nobody really cares about talking to a 93-year-old who crushed it in business. You know, you want to talk to a 93-year-old who crushed it in love. Because that's, I think, ultimately what we're wanting to hear. I mean, a 93-year-old who crushed it in business is probably not even relevant to the business community. But 93-year-old who crushed it in love is like, love is forever timeless and relevant. And it, we want to hear those secrets. And I think that's, that's what I've learned most is how to wake up and get your priorities straight is look at those people who are older and are still living a great life like the 103-year-old guy I talked to yesterday who you know goes dancing on his birthday and is still loving life, you know, and and his story is so badass. He was on the front line of World War II. One of every two people he served alongside didn't make it back. I mean, like as badass as it got and felt like he came back and he was living, you know, playing with house money and he's been play, living like that the rest of his life and every day should be like that you know i mean we got out of that we get out of the children's hospital and we you know we realize like every day you're she's healthy and that's enough right there to celebrate and embrace and if i can't pay my tax bill i'll figure it out you know but if someone has cancer and you have to deal with that it's a whole nother ball game so i think having that perspective and being able to hear 
stories and be willing to listen to other people's stories so you can learn um, the kind of challenges and how people bounce back from it. That's the stuff that's, that helps me wake up every day. And those things tend to, for people, those traumatic experiences, like obviously you've been through anybody who's probably 103 has been through them. Either those things bury you or they plant you yeah. into become like this new kind of, I guess, more badass version of yourself. And then the one common trend, I guess you've probably seen is the people who have the most love in relationships, the ones who tend to be the happiest and be here the longest. And that maybe not the ones who focus on the things that don't matter as much. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's, you know, we're on a podcast and I think I call it the podcasting jet set that all have all these life hacks. It'll be interesting to see who they become when they're 87 years old, you know, because I think like, are these things going to stand the test? Are these tips and advice and everything that you hear, are they going to stand the test of time? And that's why I think when you talk to somebody who's 98 and really happy and well adjusted, what they did us obviously stood the test of time. So that's why its subject continues to intrigue me. Yeah. And I do think if you look at it, if I was to guess, and I can't predict the future better than anybody else, but it's, if you're a good person, if you're having, you know, meaningful relationships and fun experiences, I think those things transcend anything versus like, well, this is what I did for work. Here's how I made money. But at the end of the day, like who gives a shit or some of the industries don't even exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, listen, I'd like to make 200 million. You told me that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if like, if you can do it, doing something you love and enjoy and there's a good story. Sure. Yeah. And I always say like, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like I probably make way less money because I want to exercise and do certain things. I could make an extra couple hundred thousand here and go, but if it didn't add value to my life and it took away from my life, well then to me, then it's not worth it. Cause my legacy at the end of the day, I don't think like when I die, like that dash, isn't going to be like, well, he was worth 7 million or 3 million. No one's going to give a shit. It's like, how did he make us feel? And like, what did I do that maybe got instilled in somebody? And that ripple effect is like skipping a rock on a lake, like where it just goes and goes and goes. And maybe it goes to four generations later. And maybe it was some stupid thing I said on a Friday afternoon in a podcast or that you said, they're like, oh shit, that stuck with me. And that changed the trajectory of their life. To me, that's more important than, well, here's the kind of car I drove and yeah. What does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the great quotes that I shared in the book is you don't age until your regrets outnumber your dreams. So something to. That's a good one, bro. Yeah. Something to sit with. Mic drop. Uh, I know you got to bounce, but uh, I could talk to you all day, dude. Um, we'll get you back on here for sure when you got more time because this is um, this is good stuff. These books are great, too, by the way. Uh, I'm not just gassing you up and saying that i actually do appreciate both of them um i'll stick them all in the show notes where can these guys uh stalk you at and be creepy david romanelli.com d-a-v-i-d-r-o-m-a-n-e-l-l-i.com and that's um if they want to jump into the the meditation stuff that's on the site. yeah there's a seven days to take it for a test drive on there um, right on my homepage. I dig it dude i appreciate your time man i know you're Thank busy you so much um we'll snap a photo put this on instagram and We'll make it uh, live to the world. Um, for you guys, again, reminder, if you guys want to jump into the 30 for 30, um, hit me up. The link's in our Instagram bio. If you want the Athletic Green sample, message us. Monica will get it to you. If you're on Spotify, drop it a five-star. If you're on Apple Podcasts, don't be a lazy ass. Drop it a five-star. Leave a couple of comments. I truly would appreciate it. Uh, and until next time, you guys, eat well, train hard, be nice to people. And please, you guys, keep doing shit you love with people you enjoy because your life is too short not to. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.